The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would fine me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Wednesday, October 16th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Now, I'm a learned man, debatable. But I gotta say, I do not know who won the debate. I do not know who helped themselves. I do not know how audiences will react. All the past debates suggest certain lower polling performers should get a boost, and yet that never happens. All of the previous debates, to my mind, show that Joe Biden is experiencing cognitive decline, but he hasn't lost all that much support. He's lost his big lead, but that's more about Elizabeth Warren gaining. And all the other debates suggest that any one of these candidates would be a better president than Donald Trump. Although I do not think, for instance, that, say, Tulsi Gabbard or Tom Steyer would be a better president than William Weld. Of course, that last supposition is like, could Mighty Mouse beat up Underdog in that Gabbard or Weld? That is the stuff of fiction. And what fiction it would be. I do have one observation, however. And I can help you with this observation. I figure if I keep it tight, it'll have more impact. There is a candidate who a few months ago looked like she could win, but does not look like that anymore. And she is Kamala Harris. She's evidently skilled. She has had her moments, well, really a moment in these debates. And I have in the past criticized Senator Harris for being frustratingly unclear about where she really stands on important issues like Medicare for all, and also where she stands on unimportant issues in the scheme of things like allowing felons currently in prison to vote. Sorry, sorry, I misheard. Yes, remember that. But I think a fundamental skill of Kamala Harris, or what's perceived as a skill, might actually be a weakness. So Kamala Harris has this ability, mostly based on rhetoric, but just charisma in a way, this skill to get people's attention, to give the impression that a big, important thing is being said, that attention must be paid, and this moment that we are in This is an important moment. During last night's debate, it was her use of drama and rising tension to build to this challenge to the perceived frontrunner, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren, I just want to say that I was surprised to hear that you did not agree with me that on this subject of what should be the rules around corporate responsibility for these big tech companies, when I called on Twitter to suspend Donald Trump's uh, account, that you did not agree, and I would, I would urge you to join me, because here we have Donald Trump, who has 65 million Twitter followers and is using that platform as the president of the United States to openly intimidate witnesses, to threaten witnesses, to obstruct justice. And he and his account should be taken down. Okay, but you know, that is a poor point, a weird point to spend so much time and the resources of attention staking your claim to that point. And Senator Warren pretty easily dismissed it by saying, Yeah, I'm not here to get Donald Trump off Twitter. I'm here to get Donald Trump out of the White House. Good point. And that reminded me a little bit of a couple of past Kamala Harris moments, including and paramount this one. This was during the Kavanaugh hearings where it seemed like the senator had the then federal judge on the ropes. Have you discussed Mueller or his investigation with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson and Torres, the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, President Trump's personal lawyer? Uh, Be sure about your answer, sir. Um, well, 
I'm not remembering, but if you have something you want to. Are you certain you've not had a conversation with I, anyone at that law firm? Kasowitz, Benson. Kasowitz, Benson, and yeah. Torres, which is the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, yeah. who is President Trump's personal lawyer. Are you, have you had any conversation about Robert Mueller or his investigation with anyone at that firm? Yes or no? And he said, I don't think so. And the senator seemed very suspicious. And cut to today, Kavanaugh's on the Supreme Court and nothing whatsoever became of this exchange. I remember at the moment it seemed like we were all holding our breath and what a great prosecutor and oh my God, the other shoe's going to drop. What is, what does she know? I guess we could say not much. She created, however, a moment. Kicking Trump off Twitter, bussing in the 1960s and 70s. And then when there came time for the substantive follow-up, nothing. Perhaps the former DA is too good at arresting our attention and not good enough at making her case. On the show today, I spiel about the national constituency that backs Donald Trump's actions as regards the Kurds. Hint, there isn't one. But first, Watchmen, the seminal comic book from 1986, deconstructed the idea of mass superheroes, addressed the anxieties of the Cold War when it was written, and then it was more or less faithfully adapted into a Zack Snyder film that was 10 years ago. More or less, I say, because the comic book faithful is extremely exacting. Now, HBO has a new series which takes the events of the Watchmen world that we knew from the comic books that ended in the late 80s and brings those events forward into 2019. Damon Lindelof, the creator of Lost and the Leftovers, sets this new series in Oklahoma. He's the creator. And we're thrust into a world characterized by racial terrorist backlash after a progressive politician becomes president. You want to know who it is? I'll spoil it a little for you. It's Robert Redford. Oh, it's not Robert Redford playing a role. It's actual Robert Redford who doesn't play a role. He's just the president. The director of the premiere episode and two others in this nine-episode series is Nicole Cassell, who is also an executive producer, and Nicole Cassell joins me next. In the pilot episode of HBO's new series, Watchmen, there is a shot, a brief shot, where we see the headlines and subhead of a newspaper. Now, Watchmen takes place in an alternative reality, but I think it's about the present. So it's good that someone's still reading a newspaper. And a couple of the subheads read, KKK vandalism closed down Statue of Liberty, and Boise squid shower destroys homeless camp kills two. Mmm, quite a world we're living in. This update of the classic comic series. I just saw the pilot episode. It knocked my socks off. The director is here. Nicole Cassell, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So first of all, just huge compliments. This was an amazing world-establishing pilot. Um, So you have to do that, right? So it's not just you come in, you direct the hell out of action sequences. You you get the drama from the actors. There's It's a little bit extra, right, with a premiere or pilot episode, what you're trying to do. How does it show up in the choices you make as a director? Everything. It's similar to a feature in that sense that you are creating every decision, every element. This is the groundwork. Yeah. And obviously in the pilot, we go through different times, but for 2019, 
we created a whole history of world rules, and we called it the World Book. And and that was it used to be that used to be like an out of print almanac. <laughs> exactly. Now we have it for Watchmen, mm-hmm. the series, and. I assembled that with input from the writer's room and from production design, props, costumes, everything so that the future episodes could refer to it. And we shared it with, you know, the departments all the way from top to bottom. So everybody had their eyes and ears on these are the rules of our universe. Right. In this pilot, we can say that there is a rationale for masks, Mm -hmm. Uh, not necessarily even masked superheroes. People wear masks. I don't want to give too much away. The masks of a superhero are the symbol of the superhero. And even if they're not superheroes, the masks are iconic. Rorschach's mask is iconic. But there are many others wearing masks, and the masks seem to communicate something. Tell me about those choices and how you made them. Right. Well, the idea was definitely that Cops, the cop force has one uniform. Mm-hmm. The yellow, obviously, is referencing something significant. Evo- evocative <laughs> of the happy face. That's yes. the ultimate symbol of the Watchmen. Exactly. Same, same tone. Exactly. And then the detectives get to choose their own costume. Right. And each one has a reason. And that reason for our main characters will be maybe revealed. It's definitely an expression of the self. And, you know, as you think about masks, it's really the analysis of... When are you wearing a mask? When are you not? Are you wearing a mask when you're mom at home or in a classroom or when you're dressed as something up for cop life? Yeah. And then, you know, further, you know, referencing, obviously, the source, you know, the the Watchmen, the Minutemen, they all have their costumes and they got to self-select. So that's really why the detectives in our world get to. That's kind of a right. straight through line. But it does seem that some of the detectives, it was this tossed off choice. The masks are shoddy. They're yes. maybe old. One guy's wearing, and maybe this chance will become a bigger character, wearing just a red ski mask that he's shoving some food into when yeah. we first see him. Doesn't seem to be like the amount of care and attention that Spider-Man to put into his mask. Exactly. It's definitely meant to be something just anybody can make, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a fancy one or just the jumpsuit what's that say about his character you know he just has a red uniform and it's sloppy yeah but maybe when he's not a cop maybe he's in his gucci and da 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 armani and then you know even in the work space in the police precinct we imagine what's what if there's just a box of masks you can put on when you show up if you don't have something. Right, you know, right. So you see the big old panda head. Yeah. You know, and really, we wanted the whole world to feel well-worn, gritty, and and from these characters. Not, It's actually not superheroes. It's They have no superpowers. They have no superpowers. Yes, you know? yes. Yeah. So it starts with the Tulsa race riots of 1921. Mm-hmm. Pretty shamefully, a lot of people don't know, might not know this was a real event. Hundreds died. We don't even know. I mean, yeah. it's... United States, this was less than 100 years ago. They couldn't even put a count on the number of citizens that were dead accurate within 100. Right. So had you directed anything like that before? No, absolutely not. Who do you go to for advice? Or do, do you just do it visually? Do you talk to someone? Enormous amount of time went into planning that. From reading a book, The Burning by Tim Madigan. Yeah. When I read the script, Damon told me Tulsa 21's real. Like, 
I also didn't know. I didn't know Bass Reeves is real, who's the hero of the silent film. Yeah. And so 1921 is real. So I read a book and my assistant director did and that whole team so that we made those vignettes from the book and just did everything as historically accurately as possible. We went to Greenwood in Tulsa and met with the people there, the center there. No, I've never, you know, it was 250 people at least, incredible number of stunts. I definitely did the research. I looked up, you know, I remembered reading how Ava DuVernay did the bridge sequence in, in Selma, you know, how Spielberg did Saving Private Ryan. So as a film person, I'd been studying those sequences. Right, right. And I definitely remember reading that Ava had that set blessed. And we happened to be filming on the 97th anniversary. Our day one of production was doing day one of the massacre. Yeah. And we did. We had a priest come bless the set. In advance, we wrote a letter to the entire cast and crew, and making sure especially background actors and stunt actors heard from us, like our gratitude for what we were asking them to do, whether they were perpetrator or victim and made sure that letter got to everyone. We just really, you know, went every step to make sure people were taken care of emotionally and physically. And it was very bonding experience. We started, like I said, that day with bringing everyone together. And also, you know, it's rare to get to rehearse with background, but we did the day before or a couple days before, kind of created, recreated the street on our back lot. And ran sequences with background actors, not all of them, but a mm -hmm. lot of them. And then each one would be designated a point person for their little story scene. Huh. Just And they therefore knew the assistant director team more closely. Right. And it was just, you know, really going deep to take care of everyone. Right. So <laughs> this is yeah. this was so good. In, there is a scene in a classroom, a uh, parent career day scene, and we see as many, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade classrooms might have, the list of presidents, it's over a character's shoulder, it's a little fuzzy, luckily I was watching it on something that was rewindable, wait a minute, that's how everyone watches everything these days, and I said, wait a minute, who's that next to Bush and Reagan? And I rolled back and it was Robert Redford, and I said to myself, great joke, but it's not a joke. It immediately comes up and then they talk about a kid mentions reparations, but he says it wrong. He says Redforations. And I was wondering how much do you think that people will get, make the initial connection that it wasn't just some kid mispronouncing reparations? Do you think they'll get it right then and there? Did you? I'm smart and I rewound it. <laughs> so, no, maybe not. Yeah. You know, his delivery is that it's clearly an insult. So yes. why is that an insult? Exactly evocative of Obamacare. I right. mean, that's the it's, analogy. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. You would degrade this thing if you, and this was like a white kid with a with an Oklahoma accent who you might think and this is by the way the pilot is shot through with white supremacy as the major theme, so you might think that he might come from a family that would degrade reparations as redforations. Exactly. Yeah. So if you know, that's whether or not you immediately put it all together that Redford's still president mm -hmm. and that he's been president for a long time. If You may not make all of those connections right then and there. Right. But Later on, we hear it in the background of yeah. uh, a radio show. They talk about Redford's 30 years as president. Right. right. And the boy, so the tone is clearly insulting. And then in the car right after 
the young one kind of clarifies that it was an insult. Yes. And so we want the audience asking, why is that an insult if they don't already know? Does Redford show up in the series? No. Okay. But you had to get his permission to use his... No. No? Public. Really? Yeah. But what if, if you make him a horrible, horrible killer? <laughs> I think, on, I mean, we, of course, looked that all up. Yeah. I, you're not allowed to disparage a public figure. Uh-huh. But, but if you said it in alternate history, I mean, if I were your yeah. lawyer, I'd argue for it. It would just seem to yeah. be a little dicey legally. No, we got it cleared. That's good. And, and it's not a total invention. At the end of the source mm-hmm. book, they say maybe Redford would run for president. Right. So there's, again, that's a great homage to the original. Have you or Damon or anyone else girded yourself or talked about inevitable comic enthusiast backlash? A lot. Tell me, what do you do? How do um, you... Honestly, what do you do? I don't know. You know. I don't know if there's there's an Ava DuVarnay script for it. I don't no, know. No, <laughs> I think what you do is what Damon's done. And that is he wrote that letter, you know, in the beginning, you know, in the spring when we, right before we started filming the pilot, he wrote this incredible letter to the fans saying, I know you're going to be upset with me or wonder why I'm doing this. Uh And this is why. And it's three pages. It's a beautiful letter and just so earnest. And it's basically saying, this is why. And so let him, he answers that. And, you know, and then what we're asking of the viewers is give us a chance. Please watch the nine before judging. And to the diehard fans, just know that he agreed it's not adaptable so we haven't adapted it it's an entirely different piece of work but hopefully showing it's a love letter i'd say to the source and in the nods that are made and both story-wise and visually yeah if someone wants to nitpick, if a huge fan, a Watchmen super fan wants to nitpick, why is that character not in there? Why is that character's headpiece, you know, different? Fine, put it aside. But I guess what Damon is essentially doing is saying, what I pulled out is what I think is the essential DNA of the Watchmen, right? It's not every detail. That's not how DNA works, right? You're the, 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 the How a feather is modeled on a bird might be different, even if they have the same DNA. But I'm pulling out the DNA and I'm, I'm remixing it. I'm working to create a new chimera with that DNA. I guess you can make the case, well, you got the DNA wrong or you left out a huge strand of the DNA. That's what you open yourself up to. And how would you answer that? Your loss. <laughs> you know, like, sorry. <laughs> you know, you can't win everyone. You yes. know, you yes. just, you know, honestly, you, you make work for an audience. But while you're making it, you have to just be true to yourself and those closest to you. Nicole Cassell is the director, executive producer, director of three episodes of The Nine and the premiere pilot episode of Watchmen on HBO and an executive producer. Great to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. One of the artifacts of the Trump era isn't just noting that our president is an unqualified, cruel, clownish horror show. And it's not that you can strenuously disagree with his policies or his methods or his competence. You know, so often in politics, we say, well, is this really a debate about policy or process? I mean, are you getting at his motivations or his branding? It's all of them. It's all of them with Trump. They're all execrable. But there is this very odd effect that you might not notice until you go 
back into the past and think about how things played out before Trump. And it turns out Trump's not even, though he does this too, he's not even engaging in a dishonest debate. And he's not just taking the wrong side of a third rail issue. He is redefining what the supposed controversy even is. In political science, which I studied, this is why I call myself a learned man, I learned about the concept of cleavages in public opinion and how this concept goes is that it's a smart idea, especially in a two-party democracy, uh, a well-functioning two-party system will naturally organize around cleavages in public opinion. So take an issue, immigration, right? Some Americans want less, some Americans want more, so the parties basically organize that way. One party represents less, one party represents more. In America, if it was a little more functional, it would be like uh, the Democrats would say, we want generally more immigration, but not totally unlimited immigration, and we'd have some laws. And the Republicans would say, we want less immigration, but no, we want less immigration, but not a total lack of immigration, and we'd want laws. And that'd be fine. I mean, there would be some amount of dishonesty and demagoguery, and those things are, of course, bad. But we'd have a legitimate enough debate where the two political parties, the two sides of the issues, were organized around pretty much where the split, the cleavage in public opinion is. All right. It's the same. There's a bunch of things where our society is organized this way, right? One party is more nationalistic. One party is more into, say, global citizenship, just like the people are. One party believes in diplomacy first. One party not afraid to bomb them if you have to. It's pretty much where the public is. And it's pretty much where the parties are. And you know which party sides with which side. All right. Then there's Trump. Trump has the effect of staking out a position that's either way off the grid or just an incoherent mishmash. But then what happens is, because there was no cleavage in public opinion, the cleavage becomes with Trump or against Trump. The issue doesn't dictate the stance the president, a politician, takes. The president dictates where the public has to debate. Let us take the Kurds. Let us take the Kurds who are now getting slaughtered by the Turks in Syria. Syria, or as Tulsi Gabbard calls it, a regime change war. So Barack Obama chose not to intervene in Syria. There were, there, were, there were some in his own party who said he should. There were many in the other party who said he shouldn't. The public itself sort of disagreed, but that was Barack Obama's chance. But then in 2014, and this wasn't in Syria, this was Iraq, but close to Syria, and as part of this overall effort, there was a situation do you remember this? The Yazidis, the minority ethnic group, were being slaughtered on a mountain in Iraq. And the Obama administration, which had chosen not to intervene in that general theater, intervened. And they saved, by conservative estimates, or they helped save tens of thousands of Yazidis' lives. ISIS, before this, were slaughtering the Yazidis. They slaughtered more, maybe some say, than the Obama administration could save. But the important thing here is that very important to this effort, the United States chief on the ground partner, because the United States was dropping supplies from the air and some bombs on ISIS positions. But the main force saving the lives, going in there, extracting these people from harm's way were the Kurds. And if there was a break or a cleavage in public opinion about this issue, it maybe went like this. While most of us can agree, or almost all of us can agree, yes, if we can, we should save the lives of the Yazidis. 
it is possible for the U.S. to be pulled further in, and we don't want that to happen. Obama definitely agreed with it. There was another vocal chorus who was constantly criticizing Obama, saying, of course we need to save the Yazidis, but, you know, this really is a mess of Obama's own making. We needed to be aggressive earlier. I'll play you a clip of Lindsey Graham on the floor of the Senate making the case that Obama's non-intervention is what imperiled the Yazidis. I want to hit them before they hit us. I want partners. I don't want to fight this war alone. And I want to keep the war over there. And it's coming here. And no matter what you do, it may come here anyway. But we're allowing them to come here quicker and faster than they should be allowed to come here. We're allowing them to stay stronger longer than they should. And in the wake of this foreign policy debacle, you've lost an entire group of people called the Yazidis who've basically been wiped off the place of the face of the planet. Graham Ever the Hawk wanted a stronger intervention, but at least the Kurds were bearing the brunt of the fight, right? He would say that. The Obama champions would say that. There are even a bunch of non-interventionists, maybe on the far right, but also on the far left, who would also say, oh, this is, this is bad. You know what the one good thing is? That we don't have to do the messy work. Thank God the Kurds are bearing the brunt of the fight. That's the one good thing that we could rely on the Kurds. And when we say we could rely on the Kurds, what were we relying on them to do? Uh, the U.S. dropped supplies, the U.S. dropped bombs, and the Peshmerga and the People's Protection Units and the PKK broke the ISIS siege on that mountain. The Kurds, who, by the way, all this time had actually been buying the Yazidis out of slavery from ISIS, okay, so intervening to save the Yazidis, who are a different group. They are of a different religion. They were still assisting in this. And in the case of the Sinjar Mountains, it was the Kurds who were the forces that shepherded the Yazidis away from harm. Maybe 50,000 of them were saved. Now, at the time, you didn't hear anyone say, well, you know, the Kurds, they're only fighting for their own self-interest. They weren't there at Normandy. No, they were there for us to do this thing that almost every American agreed should have been done. The cleavage was some wanted it done more. Some of the cleavage on the other side was let's not go too far. There was no cleavage where one side of the argument was and the Kurds should die. But now Donald Trump comes along and on a whim, he's turned his back on this erstwhile ally. And it seems, this is the confounding thing, it seems like there's a debate. Because I, I watched the news. I heard Senators Rand Paul and Kevin Kramer going on the Sunday shows, putting out the idea that selling out the Kurds is in our interest. Allowing the Kurds to die fits in with some established, longstanding American political belief. The House just passed a resolution condemning withdrawal in Syria by a vote of 364 to 60. I'm surprised they got 60. But, you know, the House often passes resolutions which put unbinding statements forward. The House voted overwhelmingly to condemn the Saudis for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. But there are plenty of members of the House, most members of the House, who, in fact, still regard the Saudis as an ally. But you got to say something when they do a bad thing. They're problematic, but they're an ally. This is different. No one opposes the Kurds. There is no appetite to slaughter the Kurds, to allow for the slaughter of the Kurds. And by the way, the other side of it, acquiescing to what Turkey wants, there's almost no constituency for that either. And yet Donald Trump does it. And that's where the line of debate becomes. 
his dangerous, ill-considered notion automatically takes the form of a policy where we can agree or disagree. No, no, this shouldn't be the case, but it is. We have all these people going out there of members of his own party defending this as this was an idea in anyone's mind before Donald Trump spastically embraced the idea. And the people defending it are not just loser dead-enders like Corey Lewandowski, not even just the aforementioned senators who supported in interviews. There are many others who bless it through their silence or the fact that their vocalizations of dissent are tepid at best. Even a dissolute presidency, I mean, it just does go to show that the presidency does have a lot of power, not just to make policy and to commit troops or decommit troops, but it has this way of defining political reality. And in this case, it also has the very real effect of dooming a people who were once allies and allies who everyone could agree on. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, who, if he were a member of The Watchmen, would be known as The Auditor, an ear-based version of Rorschach. His test is one of those hearing tests we all took in the fourth grade. He'd have the machine and the mask and everything. Another gist producer is Christina DeJosa, who, as a member of The Watchmen, would be known as The Prop Comic. She'd be an updated version of the nihilistic comedian, only she wouldn't be an agent of the CIA. She'd work for DARPA, so she'd have this whole box of tricky gadgets. And sometimes they'd work, but sometimes they would fail in hilarious ways. I am describing Inspector Gadget, aren't I? The gist. My Watchmen name would be Skylark. Unlike Ozymandias, named after the Percy by Shelley poem of that name, I would not be named after the Percy by Shelley poem to a Skylark, which of course begins, Hail to the Blithe Spirit. No, I would be named for a 1991 Buick Skylark. My superpower would be, I did not care if I wrecked my 1991 Buick Skylark, so I'd back it into bad guys at like 35 miles an hour. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>